This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and it's great to be back. And it's also great to be talking to another presidential candidate. Today, we're going to be talking with Congressman Seth Moulton from Massachusetts. Now, Californians and you political junkies out there may remember him as the guy who led the revolution to stop Nancy Pelosi from being Speaker of the House. And that didn't work out so well. And he's only served three terms in Congress, but he's an accomplished dude. Three degrees from Harvard, four tours of Iraq as a decorated Marine. And so we talk a lot about his military service here. And But we start out our chat by asking him the same question we've asked a lot of these presidential candidates who come on the podcast. Why the hell are you running? Seth Moulton, next on It's All Political. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Congressman Seth Moulton, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis. It's great to be here. All right. Thanks, Joe. So there are now, as, as of this moment, 24 Democrats running for president. Wait, when did it go from 23 to 24? It, uh, well, it depends who you count. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sort of making... It is hard to keep maybe track. Maybe by the time this posts, 24 or 25 will, will jump in. Now, four are sitting members of Congress like yourself. A couple are former military veterans, uh, like Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg, like you. You did four combat tours in uh, Iraq, correct? That's right. I as was, a Marine? Uh, right, as an infantry platoon commander. So I was on the ground uh, leading troops in, in combat. Yes. Um, and you've won two medals of valor for your service. Thank you for your service. Uh, Gabbard, Buttigieg, and Eric Swalwell, our very own Eric Swalwell here from the Bay Area, are all 40 or under. And you're a, a white guy running in the wake of a year of the women in politics and a time when many of the parties say the energy is with people of color. You got into the race April 22nd when the front runners and even the, and even the middle runners have run, raised more money. So, I mean, the obvious first question is why do we need a Seth Moulton candidacy? Well, there's a few things that set me apart. Uh, the first is my background. I'm the only candidate in this race who's actually had to lead troops in combat, to unite Americans in the most difficult of circumstances. In fact, I think that's the hardest job I've ever had, was to bring together an incredibly <clears throat> diverse platoon of Americans from all over this country mm -hmm. with different religious beliefs, different political beliefs, and get them united behind a common mission to serve America. And at this terribly divided time in American history, I think that's exactly the kind of leadership we need from the next president of the United States. Yeah. I'm also the only candidate in this race who's even talking about national security, about what makes America safe and strong, uh, what, it makes, what it means to be a true patriot. 
And I'm taking on Donald Trump, not just as president, but as commander in chief. And I think that's so crucial because this is actually where he's weakest. He's getting us in trouble around the globe. He's not keeping us safe or secure here at home. And if we are going to win this election as Democrats, we need to show America how we are going to take him on in that role. And we are going to make America safe, strong and patriotic. For too long, we've ceded these issues to to Republicans. I think it's time to reclaim them. You, you, as you said, you're focusing on national security, um, and you've said that the U.S. must rethink our national security. That means a new generation of arms, arms control, and alliances. Now, uh, I, want, I want you to dive into that a little bit, but and, and we can talk about the differences with Trump. But I want to say, what would you have done different than President Obama? You definitely had some concerns about the things that he was doing. I did. And I was one of the few Democrats who was willing to speak up and speak out when I disagreed. Uh, That didn't mean that we weren't close allies. In fact, uh, for I think three weeks um, in uh, in the summer when he signed on to the Iran deal, (coughs) he had my statement on the homepage of WhiteHouse.gov for why I thought that it was the right decision uh, for America to make that deal. It wasn't a perfect deal. But until Donald Trump tore it up, it had been keeping us safe. Mm -hmm. And so President Obama and I worked closely, but I also spoke out when I disagreed. Uh, I thought he handled Iraq poorly. Indeed, he withdrew the troops so quickly that we had to turn around and send them back uh, uh, a year later. I think that when Iraq's government fell apart, which is really what allowed ISIS to come in and sweep in to take over much of the country, it was really a political problem. And yet he responded mainly by sending troops when we really should have sent diplomats. So those are a couple of examples of places where I was willing to speak out and and disagree. Of course, I have a long list of disagreements with the Trump administration. But the point is I'm someone who's an independent thinker and I'm willing to step up and stand out, uh, stand out and step up, I should say, for what's right, even if it means disagreeing with my own party. And you want to get rid of some weapons systems. Give us an example of some things that, as being someone who's a military veteran, what would you like to get rid of? What are we, what's obsolete at this point? Well, here's the problem. A lot of our stuff is obs- obsolete because Russia and China are attacking us every day through the internet. Mm-hmm. And yet we're hardly investing anything in cyber defense or artificial intelligence. We do have massive investments in old legacy weapon systems uh, like aircraft carriers, for example. Now, aircraft carriers still have a role, but here's a number to think about. 1,200 and I think it was 47. That's the number of anti-carrier missiles that China can produce for the cost of one United States aircraft carrier. So as China thinks about competing with us, as they are, they're not just trying to build more carriers than us. They're building missiles to defeat them. We've got to leapfrog ahead and talk about making investments in the next generation of arms and getting rid of some of the old legacy systems that we don't need and cost too much money so that we can put that money into better investments, uh, not only in our defense, but right here at home. Uh, You talked about cybersecurity, and one thing a couple of the other candidates are talking about in terms of uh, Elizabeth Warren, your fellow Massachusetts uh, uh, resident, um, is she wants to break up Facebook. Where are you on that? Is that kind of heavy-handed or is there a way to – what would you do about that? Well, that's a great question because it's a great example of how national security policy matters to us here at home. Mm -hmm. Because if you just look at the uh, sort of monopolistic control that Facebook has has garnered – you can understand why uh, people are talking about breaking it up. And indeed, I think it was a mistake uh, for the FTC to allow Facebook to acquire WhatsApp and Instagram. I think it was a good case for forcing them to divest of those, uh, those assets. 
But if we don't think about the broader place of Facebook and America in the world, then we might lose sight of the fact that if we break up Facebook at home, it could be a Chinese version of Facebook that takes over. In 2009, the top 10 internet companies by revenue were all American. As of last year, I think four out of the top 10 are Chinese. So we're not just competing against other startups here at home. We don't just have to worry about that competitive landscape, although it's important. We also have to worry about our competition with China, places that uh, don't have the same rules for fair play that we have here in America. So you think people would, users of Facebook, the fear is that they would gravitate to a Chinese-owned uh, well, the, the social concern media is that, company? Right. Now, you, that might seem hard to believe right now, but, but the reality is that whoever's got the latest and greatest technology, whether it's developed in China uh, or it's owned by the Chinese or it's developed here at home, uh, they're going to have a lot of power in the market. And we've got to think about that competitive landscape as we consider uh, the choices that we make at home for tech. So I think there should be more regulation of tech. And I've been out here to San Francisco many times uh, talking about that, uh, learning from uh, the people here who live this every day. And one of the things I've heard from a lot of tech entrepreneurs is they do think that Washington, that elected officials should have some role in deciding what should and shouldn't be seen on the internet because that's a level of accountability uh, that you don't have when these decisions are just made do, by by people inside these private companies. Do you think it should be regulated like a media company? Well, I think that yeah, I think that's a good model. Um, now, obviously, we have to modernize these um, these models to, to to fit the new world. But right now, Europe is setting the rules for tech regulation mm -hmm. in the world. That should be America's rules. We, we should America's role. America should be setting. Uh, the rules of the road here, and making everybody else follow our lead. Now, uh, on foreign policy, uh, the former vice president, uh, Joe Biden, sort of fancies himself as Mr. Foreign Policy. What would, would make you, you know, he, he talks about his personal relationships with leaders around the world. Why would you be better than him? Well, you know, I think that um, Joe Biden is a, is a great American public servant. He's a mentor and a friend. But I believe it's time for the generation that fought in Iraq and Afghanistan to step in for the generation that sent us there. Hmm. I think it's time for a new generation of leadership here at home and abroad because we have a new set of problems. And we need to think about how to compete against the Chinese commitment to artificial intelligence and their new commitment to defeating our GPS system and other satellites in space. That's next generation warfare. That's the next generation arms that we're talking about. We also need to think about next generation arms control, which is not just making agreements to reduce nuclear weapons, although that's also important. Um, that was the vice president's experience. We need to talk about making agreements to stop the spread of AI in warfare where we could just have, not long from now, robots fighting each other. And mm. where does that leave us? What are the ethical concerns around that? We also need to are we talking? Are you talking about that in Congress at all right now, Is it, you know, in your work on the Armed Services Committee? Well, sometimes Without I feel betraying like, anything some, said in Sometimes the, I feel like I'm talking to myself because there's right, not a no. lot of other, converse, of, of other conversation about it. It's been hard to start this conversation because, frankly, there aren't a lot of people in Congress really thinking about looking forward to the next 20 or 30 years uh, rather than sort of looking backwards. For example, uh, Trump has been terrible for NATO. He's disparaged NATO. He's torn it apart. Uh, NATO is an alliance that's kept us safe in Europe for for, uh, for decades. But we do need to rethink NATO, not in the ways the president is saying, but because NATO was never designed to anticipate Russia attacking us through the internet or attacking our allies by undermining their democratic institutions in, in Eastern Europe and even in Western Europe now. 
uh, the French election, the German election, were both attacked by the Russians. Mm -hmm. And NATO wasn't designed to do that because NATO was uh, founded on a framework established in 1949. So that's what I mean uh, when I talk about a new generation of alliances. I think we've got to modernize NATO. I also think we need to formalize some of our alliances in the Pacific, a sort of Pacific version of NATO to help contain uh, the rise of China and the nuclear weapons program in North Korea. You know, your military service is uh, exemplary, um, but there is a part of the Democratic Party that is, I don't want to say suspicious or, you know, about military dudes. You know what I'm talking about. How do you sell your experience and your knowledge to that part of the, the, the more progressive wing of the party? Well, I would never say sell. I mean, I'm, I'm who I am and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm proud of it. Explain. But, but one of the <laughs> – well, you know, one of the questions I get, Joe, is, you know, Seth, if you disagreed with the Iraq war, why did you keep going back? That you was know, on why, my list. Yes. Why did you go there for four tours? Because for our listeners, you enlisted, uh, volunteered, of course. Uh, you you got a degree from Harvard, and then you enlisted before nine eleven, correct? Like yeah, so very I, shortly before. So, so to be technically correct, I made the decision before nine eleven. My training didn't start until just after. Wow. Okay. So it was kind of amazing to go to training yeah. just a couple months after nine eleven. And uh, if you remember the history, of course, we went into Afghanistan right away. My whole year of training was in two thousand two. And we all thought we had just missed the war yeah. because we thought Afghanistan would be over and done with. And we had no idea that we'd end up in Iraq, that I'd be in the first company of Marines into Baghdad uh, just after I finished training uh, the next year. Have you ever had any um, PTSD or anything from that, from your experiences? That's, I mean, I've had a, a, a very close friends who've been over several times and they've talked you know, about the experiences they've had. Anything... You know, one Marine in my platoon is a really good friend uh, said to me once, he said, you know, it's called post-traumatic stress disorder, but after seeing what we saw, you'd have a disorder if you weren't bothered by it. Yeah. And I think there's some truth to that. And I think every single one of us has been affected in one way or the other. And it's something that Americans need to know that veterans deal with that it's a burden that we carry, but it's also something that we can get past, that it is a disease that's treatable. You just need to get the right therapy. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate for improving care at the VA. In fact, I made a commitment to continue going to the VA even as a member of Congress. Uh, I'm the only candidate in this race who actually gets single-payer health care yes. because of that, which gives me an, interest, an interesting perspective on the health care debate. But I made that commitment really to my fellow Marines because I said, if you're going to the VA, I'm going to go there too until we can fix it. And one of the stories you hear at the VA a lot <clears throat> is veterans going in and trying to see a therapist, but they don't have enough mental health care professionals. And so the VA just sends them home with a prescription or two. Yeah. And I know from anecdote, from, from hearing these stories firsthand that uh, this contributes to the, to the rash of veteran suicides. On the, uh, on healthcare yet, as you alluded so to, I want to just—I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah. I do want to get back to answer the question though about doing four tours in Iraq because I think that's yeah. an important question for, sure, for people to ask and to hear. And I say, yes, yeah, Seth, if you disagreed with this war, and I was an outspoken critic of it. I mean, I wrote an op-ed in the Times uh, back in 2006 uh, uh, crit criticizing the Iraq War. I was in a, a movie called No End in Sight where I was—I saw that written by a, a Bay, uh, Berkeley guy. That's right, yes, Charles yes. Ferguson. Yes. Um, I was very critical of the war, but but the reason I kept going back is because. I wanted to take care of my Marines, and I didn't want anyone going in my place. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to realize that 
you know, if you refuse to go, there will be someone who goes in your place. You know, when Donald Trump got out of serving in Vietnam by lying about his feet, don't think that someone didn't go in his place. In fact, I'd like to meet the American hero who went in Donald Trump's place. I, I hope he's still alive. But when I went to Iraq, even though I disagreed with the war, I knew that I was able to have an effect, even in just a small way, on how that war was fought every day. I had a sense of purpose in my work because it impacted the lives of other people. And I had so much a sense of purpose, in fact, that I, that I actually missed that, that commitment when I, when I got out. And that's fundamentally why I decided to run for Congress in the first place, to try to change Washington and prevent what happened in Iraq from happening again. I, th I thought back to a day in 2004 when it was, it was a pretty rough day. And um, a Marine in my platoon, was, I remember where we were sitting at the end of the day, and he looked up at me and he said, you know, sir, you ought to run for Congress someday so that this stuff doesn't happen again. Now, he's, he's a Marine term for stuff, but I'm not sure that's allowed on this program. We can, so. we, we can, we can <laughs> drop more than stuff on the podcast. We can drop more than stuff. The... Uh, so what are you thinking about as we're, we are facing a similar situation right now or we're, we're running up to that in Iran? What are you doing? You're, you have the chance to do that right now. What are you doing to prevent us from uh, engaging militarily in Iran? Well, first of all, it's frighteningly similar. Uh, you have some of the same people, John Bolton, in the White House agitating for war. And agitating with a president who doesn't have a lot of credibility to stop it because he got out of serving himself, uh, much like George W. Bush avoided going to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And Congress isn't doing enough to stop it. I thought Congress would have learned its lesson from the run-up to Iraq in 2002 and 2003. But I have a resolution I've proposed that's written to be very bipartisan that just reminds the administration that it's Congress's decision whether or not we go to war, not the president's. That's written in the Constitution. And yet it's been very difficult to get Republicans to sign on because some of them just candidly have told me, you know, Seth, this is the right thing to do. I'd even vote for it, but I don't want to co-sponsor it because I don't want to upset the president. Oh, my God. Really? They're scared. Wow. They're scared of the Trump White House. And um, What are they scared of? Being primary? Being caught out on Twitter? What are they scared of? Yeah, it's, they're scared of the politics. Um, it reminds me of what people ask me when they see Congress, you know, denying Cong climate change or not doing enough to to take care of the, the scourge of gun violence in our country. And, and people ask me, you know, Seth, why is Congress so stupid? And my answer is that, to be honest, I mean, I've only been there for a few years, but most of my colleagues are pretty smart. I think what's lacking in Congress isn't intelligence, it's it's courage. It's just the courage to do the right thing. It's the courage to to stand up now and say, let's be careful before we go into Iran because if there's one thing we learned from Iraq, it's that wars are a lot easier to start than they are to end. Right. Think about the fact that today in Iraq, we have troops that weren't even alive on 9-11. And that's that's amazing that, uh, that it's been that long. I think it's Americans forget it because yeah. I think that there are – we don't – it's an all-volunteer force. There is a there's very few people who come from privilege like yourself who volunteered to, to be there. And I think that's one reason why the impact of war sometimes isn't felt across the country like, you know, Vietnam and other and, and previous wars. It's right. And it's the and it's the youngest who are usually on the front lines. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. why I really I wanted to be in the infantry because I had so much respect for these 
you know, 18-year-old kids who are out there on the front lines. But I'll tell you, I mean, <laughs> the night that we left Kuwait to go into Baghdad, um, I got the brief from my company commander. And, of course, it was 3 in the morning. These things never happen at 3 this in the afternoon, This is March right? 20, 2002. 2003. 2003. Yeah. And, um, and as I turned to walk out of his tent, uh, he yelled at me and said, oh, Lieutenant Moulton, turn around, you know, come back. And uh, I said, you know, yeah, what's up, sir? And, um, and he said, oh, before you go, these two are with you. And he pointed to two baby-faced 17-year-olds who had just flown over straight from Marine training to Kuwait to join us on the day we invaded Iraq. And you're all of, what, 23 at this point? I'm about 23, yeah. yeah. And, and, and these are the burdens that we place on the youngest Americans uh, when, we go into, when we go into war and put them on the front lines. And from everything I know, Iran would be even bloodier <laughs> than Iraq. We actually fought Iranians in 2004. Uh, they brought in Iranian mortar teams in Najaf, uh, where I was fighting with my second platoon. And, um, and they were good. They were accurate. Mm. Um, it was bloody. We, we beat them. We won that battle. And you know what? If it's necessary, I'll fight the Iranians again. But this is not necessary. This is not a necessary war. I think they're exaggerating the intelligence. I think they're putting troops into the Gulf and into the region, almost like they want a, a Vietnam-style Gulf of Tonkin incident to just set something off, to have an excuse to go bomb Iran. And I don't think they have any strategy whatsoever for how to end a war. Well, well what can the House do? Wait, you, Democrats control the House. What, what should the House be doing right now? The House should pass a bipartisan, should pass my bipartisan resolution, frankly, to, to say to the administration, uh, you're not going to do this without us speaking up, that it's our constitutional authority to decide whether or not we go to war and not your unilateral decision. If that's something that we should be able to pass in a bipartisan manner. I don't think it's good enough if it just passes with Democratic votes. I mean, I guess it's better than nothing, but we really should have... Republicans uh, stand up and, and vote right. for that as well. All right. I want to get to a few other things because uh, uh, you'll be deciding all sorts of things as president. On health care, we, sort of, we started talking about this, and, and you, you do get your, your very interesting cat on health care because, you, 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 as you mentioned, you get single payer like no one else <laughs> does. Right. And so, but you're not a fan of single payer necessarily. You do like uh, much of the rest of the field is sprinting towards uh, Medicare for all. That's not your thing. You would like to see a public option. Why is that? That's right. I want what President Obama intended with the Affordable Care Act, but Congress stripped out at the last minute, which is to have a, a public option, a single-payer option, but not something that you force every American to have. I don't think we should force every American onto a government-run health care plan designed in 1963. We're the United States of America. We can do better than that. And competition is healthy for the system. Now, just think about another government monopoly, the United States Postal Service. Hmm. Does anyone honestly think it would be good for Congress and the next president to come in and say, you know what, we're just going to outlaw FedEx and UPS. We don't want them competing anymore with the United States Postal Service. I mean, does anyone think that that would be good for the system? <laughs> no, of course not. You'd see prices go up, not yeah, down. Right. You'd see efficiency get worse. And so, and so just as we have options for delivering our packages, I think we should have options for our health care. That means a public option that competes against the private options that people have. Now, look, the public, the public option may be better and it may push some of those private options out of business. And that's fine. But that competition is healthy for both. 
And I say that as someone who goes to single-payer healthcare at the VA and has kind of seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about the good because there are some things the VA does well. For example, the VA negotiates prescription drugs, which Medicare doesn't do. Right. So we have lower prescription drug prices through the VA and a much more efficient system for getting them, by the way, than, uh, than at Medicare uh, or then through Medicare. But I also had surgery at the VA not too long ago. And they did a fine job in the surgery. He was actually uh, a surgeon. It was a great surgeon from George Washington who volunteered her time there because she wants to serve veterans. And she was the best of the best. But then the pharmacy sent me home with the wrong medications. And it turned out that I needed some pretty powerful painkillers for after the anesthesia wore off. And instead, they sent me home with Advil. So Ooh. it was painful, but <laughs> but I wasn't in danger. Imagine yeah, if they had right. sent me home with a dangerous or addictive drug right. instead of the one that I was supposed to get. That just shows you, you know, how this system is far from perfect. And, and we all know the stories of veterans literally dying on waiting lists trying to get care. I was out in Nevada recently, met with a number of uh, female veterans, uh, women who said they just don't have enough OBGYNs. And so I've got to wait three months to get an appointment. That's not the system that every American is going to want. So I want to see a good old hearty American competition in healthcare. But don't get me wrong. Every American deserves affordable healthcare. So you, That's you the bottom are line. for a universal care. You absolutely. Believe, okay, yeah. Absolutely. Now, you've question. also said, I am not a socialist. I'm a Democrat. And I want to make that clear. Um, but you support the Green New Deal. Uh, but you've said... Promising everyone a socialist job plan and bankrupting the government in the process is not the way to deal with climate change. So, and which is, there is a, and the reference there is that there is a uh, jobs guarantee as part of the Green New Deal framework, which you well, have signed on to. Well, here's the thing. I signed on to it before it had all those components. So I signed on to the framework. In fact, I was one of the first people to sign on to it in, in Congress because we have got to do something about climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm speaking as one of the only members of Congress who has a degree in science. Uh, Congress is sort of infamous for denying science. Well, I believe it. <laughs> I studied it. I mean, that's, uh, that's part of why I'm there. So we've got to do something about climate change. But then as they added, uh, some of the authors of the bill added different components, including this jobs guarantee, I said, you know, this this isn't the way for America to win the green tech revolution. And frankly, the harsh reality is it would never even get passed. So we've got to make sure that we have a strong, forward-looking plan to, to address climate change that also grows the American economy, to make sure we're developing the green technologies to sell to China and the rest of the world. All right, Congressman, we're in San Francisco. Let's talk Pelosi. You got to talk about Pelosi. Now, after the midterm elections, when you, uh, the Democrats, uh, flipped the House, you said this election was a call for change. And you led the, um, you called for Democrats to replace Nancy Pelosi as its leader. Well, the top, the top three in the House. The top three, all three, yeah. Right. All who've been there for more than a dozen years, all folks in their 70s. I think about 18, yeah. yeah. No. And you said, uh, as of Pelosi, she, she never took responsibility for anything, and that's not what leaders do. Well, not for anything. I mean, she's taken responsibility for a lot of things. But, but, but look, the, the point, I think I was talking about the, the losses that we had um, okay. over and the years. And you said a good, a good selfless leader shares the credit for a win and owns mistakes. Do you, do you regret saying any of that stuff now? Look, it's true. That is the definition of a selfless leader. Yeah. And, uh, that but do you is regret what, saying it about that, Pelosi? That, that is what leadership is all about. It's about accountability. But, but we were able to have a good democratic debate. Mm-hmm. And look, 
Nancy Pelosi is a strong woman. She can stand up to a debate like that, and she did. And she made the case to our caucus uh, to be the next leader. Uh, There were others that that we uh, supported behind the scenes, but they, at the end of the day, didn't throw their hat in the ring, including some other extraordinary women. Yeah, um, Marsha Fudge was one of them. And and some from California, too. But but Come on, but just between us. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I really wanted Karen Bass to step up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for a while, I thought that she might. Um, but uh, but at the end of the day, she decided not to. And so we came to a to a deal that actually gave uh, Pelosi the vote she needed to become speaker. She only won the speakership by five votes. And this deal on term limits got her seven votes. Uh, so so she needed those votes. And it made sure that we have a strong speaker. But we also got out of that debate, the voting rights uh, subcommittee, the climate change mm-hmm. subcommittee. And this deal on term limits will ensure that this new generation, this incredibly diverse class, this historically diverse class of freshmen will actually have a chance to lead in the future. Uh, and, and honestly, I think that's a better result than if we had just gotten three new leaders at the top who might have been there for 18 years themselves. Uh, this will ensure that we have new ideas and new yeah. leaders coming to the top of the party. I think it makes a stronger Democratic Party and a stronger country. No, I was wondering, why didn't you want to run yourself? Oh, I had made I said before I wasn't going <clears> to <throat> run and I'd, uh, I'd I thought it was important to uphold that that promise. I'm someone who's just spent the last two years fighting to get these folks elected. Uh, I started a group called Serve America that endorsed, supported, and recruited some of yeah. the amazing You raised people. a lot of money. You raised like $8 million bucks, right? Uh, yeah, I think it was the third highest in the country yeah. for a leadership pack. And it had a huge impact on these elections. In fact, of the 40 sle- seats that we flipped to take back the House, 21 of them. Uh, were endorsed and supported by my, my campaign uh, by Serve America, including a lot of extraordinary women, many women veterans like Mikey Sherrill, the helicopter pilot in New mm-hmm. Jersey, Alyssa Slotkin and Abigail Spanberger, CIA veterans in, in Michigan and in Virginia, uh, Jason Crow, who took on a really tough uh, race in Colorado, talking about gun reform in a place where you're not supposed to talk about gun reform, in a Western state, uh, anyone. Max Rose in, in, uh, in, in Staten Island, and Elaine Luria, uh, an amazing uh, naval leader um, out in, in, in uh, Eastern Virginia. So there are extraordinary people who have come into to Washington, not just to win back the House for Democrats, but to really bring some new leadership to Congress. And, uh, and I want to make sure they actually have a chance to lead. Well, and Pelosi, do you, do, how do you feel she's done in her uh, – in 2.0 oh, she's speaker? Been, she's been great at taking on uh, Trump. Yeah. I mean she's just been uh, And you're comfortable with fantastic. her leadership now? She's been fantastic at, t- at taking on Trump and that's really important. But I also want to make sure that we have leaders that, um, that people look to and say, you know, that's the future of the country. That's the future of the party. They're going to take us forward into the next 20 years and, and deal with the challenges of, of regulating tech for example, Mm -hmm. and deal with the challenges of climate change, uh, deal with the challenges of a a changing economy that's leaving a lot of Americans behind, not not here in San Francisco, but across the country. Uh, Let's let's talk about the president. Um, We uh, I'm going to have someone on the podcast next week from um, Working America, Matt Morrison. I don't know if you know him. He's he said that, uh, you know, Trump has a very good chance of, of winning again. And you said this uh, last night and, and when you were here at a fundraiser in San Francisco, you said, yeah. I think Donald Trump will be a lot harder to beat than most people think, especially those in Boston or San Francisco. I say it's a 60% chance that Trump will be reelected, except, of course, if there's a molten president, uh, presidential well, candidate. Well, look, I mean— But what, why, why do you feel he's—I uh, mean, the consumer confidence is up, unemployment's down, you know, the market is fine— why do you feel that? Uh, why do you feel that Trump is is going to be? 
Well, part of it's the case that you just made. I mean, the top line numbers for our economy are pretty good. And historically, incumbent presidents get reelected when the economy is doing well. Uh, That's an almost unbroken record. Um, But I also spent a lot of time in parts of this country that we need to win, to win this election. These are the places that I went to um, to help to help many of these candidates. And, you know, unfortunately, there there are places where not a lot of Democrats go. Uh, When I campaigned for Connor Lamb, in Western Pennsylvania, he was one of the first to to win in this new Democratic wave. My mom got out of the her hospital bed after she broke her hip, ninety three years old, to vote for Connor. <laughs> Is that yes, right? That's I will amazing. give my mom a shout out for that. Yes. Well, he only invited four Democrats in the country to come campaign for mm. him. And Amy McGrath down in Kentucky, who almost uh, won her race and now is being talked about as the best candidate to take on Mitch McConnell, which is incredibly exciting because she's an extraordinary leader, one of the uh, first uh, women to fly an F-A-18 in combat in the Marines. Um, She she only invited two to come campaign for her. So I've been to a lot of parts of the country that, that many Democrats don't go to. And these are places where there are a lot of Obama Trump voters, people who felt left behind by Washington and voted for hope and change in Obama, but then didn't see enough hope and change. And so they voted for someone who was just going to blow up the system in Donald Trump. And those voters are going to be hard to win back. And we have to if we're going to win this election. And that's why it's so important that, you know, we take on Donald Trump where he's weakest, as I'm doing, challenging him in his job as commander in chief. It's why we've got to reach out to um, to all Americans and why I talk about being a president, not just for Democrats, but but for this whole country, uh, even people I disagree with. And, and so that kind of leadership is, I think, what we need in order to take on a president who's quietly popular in a lot of parts of the country. You know, last night you mentioned, I, I, I mentioned the 60% number. That's what I've heard a lot of people say. I actually did a, just an informal poll in the room, um, all people from San Francisco. And I, and I said, OK, well, let's start it. We'll start at uh, 30%. We'll go up to 70%. You know, raise your hand if you think Donald Trump has a 30% chance of being reclaimed, a 40%, a 50% chance. <laughs> the most hands were for between 50 and 60 Wow. So maybe I even... This is the middle of the mission district in San Francisco. So I always say, you know, people in Boston and San Francisco don't realize this. Maybe even here people do. Uh, This is going to be a tough election. And Mm -hmm. that's why I do think it's important that we have so many Democrats in this race uh, to offer different perspectives. Um, But ultimately, we've got to take someone... We've got to pick someone who is going to be able to take on Donald Trump. Why do you think he's still popular in those parts of the country? Because... I mean, because things have, I mean, for many working people, I mean, if you're, if you're deep in the market, it's great. If you're a wealthy person, it's great. But if you're, you're somewhere in the middle, things haven't changed all that much, have they? No, they haven't. So but why I think is that's he actually, still popular? But I think that's actually part of the answer because they still see him as someone who's willing to challenge the system. And they know that the system has failed them, that Washington has left them behind. And although it's true that rather than drain the swamp, I mean, this guy's made Washington as swampy as it's ever been. Uh, We've never seen levels of corruption like we have in his Mm -hmm. administration. Nonetheless, I think a lot of Americans just think that he's willing to take on the system and there's not another alternative that really understands what what they're going through. That's why it's, I think, important to spend time in these parts of the country. It's, It's one of the reasons why... And people ask me, you know, Seth, you know, you're a congressman and how do you stay grounded? Um... Well, I have a Facebook group with my second platoon. We communicate almost every single day. That's great. And there are Marines who are doing really well, and there are Marines who are really struggling. And these are people, every one of whom put their life on the line multiple times mm. for our country. And uh, we owe them more than, uh, than a hard time when they get back home. 
So I know some of those guys voted for Trump just because they felt like he, they wanted him to, you know, blow up the system mm. and maybe it would get better. Um, but I'm also proud to know that many of them have said, you know, we'll support you, Seth. Mm. When I was down in South Carolina, um, I, I never want to invite the Marines to things like explicitly because I don't want them to feel like they have to come or anything right. like that. But, um, you know, a guy I hadn't seen in 10 years uh, from from one of my platoons, he uh, he just showed up and sat in the back of a veterans round table and, um, and said, yeah, I drove three hours just to, to say hi because we're here for each other. Wow, that's great. Uh, one other thing I want to say about uh, Trump, you have you were uh, for impeachment before impeachment was cool in the House. That's right. And that's uh, right. like a year ago. And um, Pelosi has long discouraged it. She might be soft a little bit now. Where, where, where do you think, what do you think Democrats should do at this point? I mean, is this a distraction? Is it, could, and can you walk and chew gum at the same time? What should Democrats be doing about impeachment right now? We have to do what's right for the country. And a lot of people are saying that it's a politically inopportune time that, you know, the politics are bad or people have moved on or whatever else. Look, we didn't swear an oath to politics. We swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. And that's why I voted for impeachment proceedings to begin last year when it was unpopular in the party. I was in a small minority of Democrats who voted for that. But, but I mean, look at this investigation. O- over 30 of Trump's close associates have been indicted by the Mueller probe. His own campaign chairman is in prison. Don't tell me there's not enough to debate impeachment. And that's our responsibility as members of Congress to act as that constitutional check on the executive. I honestly think it was a mistake for us to, 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 to put it off. We should have started it when we knew that there were enough issues to have that debate. And then we can decide what time to ha- when the right time is to have a vote. Because there's two things Congress does. We, we debate things and then we vote on them. I don't think it's the right time to vote on impeachment because we don't even have the full Mueller report. We still have a lot more facts we need to figure mm-hmm. out. But starting that debate and having those proceedings would allow us to get access to more of those facts for ourselves and for the American people. All right. So uh, your colleague, uh, Eric Swalwell, sat in that very chair and he said, I said, well, are you going to give up your House seat? And, and uh, Swalwell said, I'm just like Cortez. Burn the boats. I don't want any lifeboats there. I'm not running. I'm giving up my seat. And then he, then he backed off it like, two weeks later. Uh, where are you on your – are you going to give up your seat or are you going to see how this presidential thing rides and then uh, think about re-election? Uh, the, the latter. I'm very proud to be serving the, uh, the state, the state of, Mass- the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and um, my, uh, my constituents uh, back there. I think the best thing I can do to serve them right now is to run for president. And try to beat Donald Trump because it's so important for them at home in Massachusetts that we get a new president of the United States. Uh, But ultimately, if Democrats decide not to choose me, then I'm going to be proud to to continue serving them in Congress and back in Massachusetts. All right. Seth Moulton, thanks so much for being on It's All Political. Thanks for having me. Well, that was fun. I would like to thank all of you for listening today. It's great to be back. I'd like to thank Congressman Seth Moulton for being on the podcast today here in San Francisco. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for expertly producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you tried to topple the Speaker of the House or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, 
subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.